right, this is the A. I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is the A, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay. We have a fantastic guest, Carolyn Doyle. Hey, Carolyn, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Carolyn is a, a veteran actress. I think you and I were on stage last when we did Fear and Misery in the Third Reich. And, yes. And that was, uh, I think that was at the Traveling Jewish Theater and also oh, wow. the Jewish Community Center. It was an East Ender thing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, volume down a little bit, but yeah, that was a long time. It's amazing. It's, I've often said, you know, my dad says, after you turn 30, the years go by just like that. I can't believe that that was in 2007. Mm-hmm. That was 11 years ago. That was amazing. Oh, my God. Stop <laughs> it. That's depressing. No, yeah, we toured around with that, too. It's like yeah. libraries and, and, and different venues. Oh, okay. yeah. Cool. You, oh, well, Carolyn and I, mm-hmm. um, when I started Oakland Public Theater, one of the first shows that we got to put up, Carolyn was in. And, uh, that was my first equity contract. Was it? Yay! Yes, it was. Thank you very much, Norman. Wow. <laughs> and it's funny because Equity talked me into doing that contract. Oh, thank well, you. Well, I, I knew what I wanted, and we were able to work out the numbers, so that was great. But uh, but I'd seen you around for years before that, so I was actually thrilled that you were available to do it. It was a nice feeling to go, I get to take advantage of the talent pool here. Yes, I do. And also, not only are you a, uh, an actress, a veteran actress, but also you're a writer. You had a, a one-woman show. Uh, talking about your son. Yeah, yeah. I did a show um, about my son called um, Confessions of a Refrigerator Mother that um, that I developed and ran at the Marsh. It was um, it was a it was a success and it was a very rewarding experience. Yeah, and that it, it was mounted twice, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Marsh does this uh, stuff where they sort of develop things. So I had a Marsh Rising, and then I got a full run after the Marsh Rising. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you know, no, we had a guest. I uh, forget the woman who was. It was immediately. It was the first podcast of 2018. She was looking for one uh, one woman show talent. Um, who was the? Um, it was. It was. Oh, Mary Alice. Yes, Mary Alice. Mary Alice Fry. Yeah. So you should contact Mary Alice Fry because I think um, the refrigerator mother that would be perfect for what she's looking for. Well, you know, I don't actually. I can't do it anymore um, mm-hmm. because it was a really it was a really personal piece and it was really a tribute to my marriage and my marriage has since I fallen apart and yeah. so it's a different and even if my marriage hadn't fallen apart I don't know that it, it was a very specific time in my life sure. I would actually love to give it to somebody else to do mm-hmm. and I I did use that piece to um, tour around a little bit around um, autism awareness uh-huh. and people in the community yeah and I think that's why that was the important I th- important aspect of that. So I think it's yeah. an important story, but I just, in a way, it's not my story anymore. You yeah, know, like I've sort of moved on past that. Well, I do have other stuff. Sequel. Well, I've actually thought about that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this, we had this whole pre-taping uh, conversation about my life uh, and, mm-hmm. and sort of catching up about what's been going on in my life, and I've actually thought, how could I shape some of the things that I talked about with you guys into, yeah, the sequel that might be interesting. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely get into that. As I'm especially interested in the right, the the actor that transitions into the writer, or you know, like just how I guess your mind switches between one and the other because it's 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 difficult. I mean, I'm going through that myself. Like I'm getting I'm getting from writing, I'm sorry, acting into writing, and just like the patterns and uh, techniques and habits that you have and, and that sort of stuff. Well, I. I actually don't really identify as a writer. I identify as a storyteller, okay. um, whatever yeah. that means. But, but yeah. I guess um, I get intimidated by uh, the word writer in, in some way. It feels academic or something. But I tell stories all the time and don't even think about it. And so um, I think 
when I'm writing, it's more like I'm still thinking of an audience and just telling a story. And so the, 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 the way that I develop a piece is sort of automatic writing. I might give myself, say, 15 minutes, and I take the pen, and I don't let my pen come off the paper for 15 minutes, and I write whatever I want. And if nothing comes out, then I can just write that. I can write, I don't know what to say. This sucks. And then mm -hmm. keep going. And it's on a topic. I mean, I give myself something juicy to work with. But um, I, d I don't think I have separate hats in that way. And, um, yeah, I c the, the idea of, like, actually writing a structured play or a one-act, that freaks me out completely. I couldn't do that at all. Yeah. But, I mean, the storyteller, I mean, you know, you still make it into a form that can be presented in a, you know, in a play. Well, that's the thing. It's yeah. always trying to think about the structure. What are you going to drape these sort of things on? You know, the, what's going to be the structure of, of, a, of a solo piece? Like, what mm -hmm. did you – how can you kind of drape those – those stories, what's going to be the form? And so with m the story about my son, it was a day in the life. That was kind of the skeleton that I kind of draped it all on. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And as, as I begin every podcast, Norman, how was your week? Busy! <laughs> well, busy's good. Oh, my, so, um, Lucia Berlin is going great. Mm -hmm. Sold out. Fantastic. Shows, those are sold out. Mm -hmm. um, I ahead. had booked all this work this week, so I've done a bunch of modeling. I've modeled for art classes. Mm -hmm. And um, and then Elizabeth Carter is on vacation, mm -hmm. and so I've been subbing for her at School of the Arts in San Francisco. It's just been a lot of running around. And then on top of that, mm -hmm. my father and my stepmom came to town to see the show, so mm -hmm. making time to see family. And then my sister, who's here with us today. Hi, uh, sister. Hey. She's <laughs> in the back right now. <laughs> um, uh, just arrived, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's just, it's just been a lot. Yeah. A lot of running around. Yeah, I haven't, you know, when we, um, this this October, um, we'll be doing uh, Four Men in Paris, my uh, piece, and uh, I think my parents will be around, so I'll have to sort of shuffle having them plus, you know, managing all this other stuff. So I imagine, you know, it's been very, very busy at the uh, the G household. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely been busy. Yeah. But uh, like I said, busy is good. Let's, um, so there have been some, um, uh, some events. <clears throat> we usually talk about politics or whatever. Um, Randall, so there was a shooting. Well, we I think we talked last week about it. There was a public shooting that happened uh, in Florida. And um, just yesterday, there was another shooting. Uh, a guy named Randall Davidson uh, shot a gun in the classroom. Oh, right. And uh, killed his parents. Oh, yeah. Central yeah. Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Domestic, they said. And I love that they put these tags on these things. That's domestic violence. Yeah. Um, it's still public violence. You know, you know what's amazing? The media, it's like CNN will say, oh, my God, there was another shooting in a school. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. It was a, it was a domestic thing. Right. Yeah, don't worry about it. Exactly. It's like, and we, we've developed such a callous about violence. It's really, really horrible. I mean, um, Carolyn, what do you think about what's happening just in the world, I mean, in the, in the age of Trump? I mean, I ask everyone this, um, just... This whole Second Amendment, uh, you know, debate that we're having yet again and again. I mean, if Sandy Brook wasn't enough, if if the San Bernardino shootings wasn't enough, if Las Vegas wasn't enough, now we have um, uh, Stoneman High School. Um, high school? Yeah, it was high school. Well, you know, I am uh, Trump. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you said it in one word. There you go. Well, it, you know. It's, 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 it's a topsy-turvy Alice in Wonderland falling down the rabbit hole kind of thing. I mean, uh, seriously, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a world I don't understand. The only, the only thing, I've been thinking about this lately, just a, 
just something that I've been thinking about. Um, there's an odd silver lining, which is that, in a way, Trump makes anything possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the future, right? right. Because every, every system, every, uh, every way that we have done things has sort of just been smashed in this mm-hmm. really kind of willful, ignorant way. But in a way, oddly, and all this, oh, I'm not being very articulate, but mm-hmm. it sort of changes things. That suddenly, I guess what I'm trying to say is suddenly Oprah Winfrey can say, yes, I, I would like to run for president. And somehow that seems plausible because almost anything is plausible. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like this yeah, weird there are no standards anymore. I mean, there used to be a standard of being president. You'd exactly. Have to, yeah. and, I, and so not to say that that makes uh, Oprah Winfrey um, – but it, it, that's the silver lining, I think, is that mm-hmm. all this sort of mm-hmm. history has been smashed, and, uh, right. and, and and there's 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 no lowest common denominator anymore, yeah. and it makes almost anything possible. That's the only like like straw of hope that I I hang on that's to because yeah, that's like my little you know Pollyanna moment of like mm-hmm. where's the silver lining yeah. in this? I'd like to hope that it's only that it's finite. That it'll only last, you know, for like this is a little bump in the road, right. and that we'll get back into reality, you know. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know if I if that's true. I think what it is though is it's a pendulum. I mm-hmm. think, you know, we had been on one end of the pendulum, and Trump, you know, in in such a garish fashion, brought us to this other end of yeah. the spectrum yeah. or the, the pendulum, and I think it it actually does maybe allow for some motion in the middle. I mean, right. everybody talks about Trump being sort of the the, the death rattle, the last gasp of, mm-hmm. of I don't, uh, you know, of conservatism and racism and things. It's not, of course, but I do think, in a weird way, it opens up other conversations. That's what I hope, you know. In four mm-hmm. years, other things might be possible. Obviously, Obama, you know, um, his presidency did that in a positive way, but in a negative way, Trump is doing something uniquely. Yeah. I think a lot of dead wood is getting clear at this point because there's just been a lot of things like, for example, immigration has been discussed for decades, mm-hmm. and policy has been discussed for decades. Ideas have been floated for decades. There's been very little movement, and suddenly we're having to focus on this in a way that we never had before. You know, the budget mm-hmm. is on the line, and, you know, are there Democrats going to shut down the government, which is crazy mm-hmm. since the Republicans are in charge of the government. Even the tariff issue, I mean, you know, just yesterday, I think uh, the day or the day before yesterday, you put amazing tariffs on steel, mm-hmm. and many, many countries are revolting against him and warning him, hey, listen, he don't do it. I wish we could sue him, mm-hmm. because the, he did it under something that says this is um, a national security interest thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, it isn't. This, we, are not, we are not the steel producer anymore, so... Right. No, you're, you're taking care of that industry, yeah. and that's a debatable thing that's worth considering, but the way you're doing it is just making all these things, you, like you said, everything's on the table, everything is being questioned. And and you must be shaken out of your complacency. Yeah. There's just absolutely yeah. no way you can The fascinating thing about the Trump uh, presidency, and I talked about this on the other podcast, I have a faith podcast, you think that people will be motivated by love. People are very much more motivated by hate and fear and, fear fear. and pain. I mean, that's the thing that gets you out of your couch right. and, and march and protest. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a sad thing, and I'd hate to give credit to Trump, but really, you don't get 
almost every high school child in Florida to walk out of their classroom and protest. Okay, but that's exciting, right? Isn't it that is. exciting? That's that amazing. is the one thing that I'm so, so turned on by all these really cool theater mm-hmm. nerds. Right, theater nerds! Totally right. Right. taking over, and oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. No, I posted, um, I've been waiting for this my whole life, and nobody has questioned me on this. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, no, seriously, when I was a kid, I remember because the media didn't have language to talk about what was going on, so they talked about what the kids were doing. And what they really meant was like college age people, the teenagers in mm-hmm. the 60s. Mm-hmm. That whole rebellion that <coughs> happened. But they kept referring to the kids doing this. And I, as a little kid, was going, oh, Ooh, how cool. <laughs> I've been waiting for this my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So exciting. So, and I hope it, it, it sustains itself. You yes. know, I always worry that, okay. This will sustain itself until the next news cycle and the next, right. you know, atrocity yeah. happens. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, this whole uh, Hope Hicks resigning after testifying that she told a little white lie to Congress. And all of a sudden, everyone's focusing on that and all I the other. This well, she is a, basically a fashion plate. You know, her only requirement uh, for getting into the White House, she was the communications director oh, for the White House. Okay. She was a former, I think she was a Miss USA, or she was, you know, that's that's the requirement for getting into the Trump administration and was the sole confidant of Trump. And I'm like, right. okay, I'm raised eyebrows, you know. Right. <laughs> Let's hear about the sexual allegation. But, you know, nothing, nothing like that's going on. But in any case, she got caught. You know, there's a whole, and Robert Mueller is investigating everyone. Right. About what are their ties to Russia. Right. And Hope Hicks got caught, I guess, telling a white lie. She was crafting the um, the statements of there was another guy who, I guess, was thrown out of the White House because he had cheated or he had a history of sexual um, oh. uh, abuse. I think she was dating him. I'm being yeah, sincere. exactly oh, right. They yeah, were dating. Yeah. They were dating. Or they are. Or yeah. Whatever. And so she, when she crafted the uh, the statement of his, mm-hmm. basically there were lies there. And then Jared Kushner. Right. She crafted, she crafted the statement of Jared Kushner to right. talk about what his dealings or what his dealings were not with Russian ambassadors right. while he's taking a half a billion dollar loan right. from these Russian folks right. while talking about foreign policy. Right. I mean, you know, if that's not conflict of interest, my name is Tom T. Hall. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is ridiculous. And so she got caught with the white lies and now she's out. <laughs> that's what happens. And these things distract us from the real issues that are going on. Like guns. Well, no, I think the teenagers, but that story, I think, is, is going to stay. I think. Yeah. Well, they're aiming at the elections. So yep. I the hope they'll keep them in length. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you've got high school students running for governor in uh, yeah, Kansas. Love it. Uh, yeah. Very cool. So, do you, when, because uh, you, you have teenagers, do you talk about them about what's happening to gauge their thoughts and all that stuff? Well, uh, I have a 20 year old son who is. Um, uh, has low-functioning autism. He's nonverbal. He's just potty trained, so that's mm-hmm. huge. Thank you very much. Cool. Uh, but a, and a 15-year-old daughter who uh, is not interested in any single thing I have to say. She's a teenager. <laughs> well, not yet. She'll come around. I mean, no, she, she, that's not completely true. She, she is very interested. She just um, hides it really well. Um, so, no, I, I don't because um, right now her whole thing is really um, YouTube, which I have to say, right. okay, mm-hmm. I, I mean, okay, I'm old, right? Mm-hmm. But to her, YouTube, I mean, this phenomenon, YouTube is an equal platform to to theater, to film, yep, to right. TV for her. It's all the same artistic merit. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there's there's a few people that I might agree with that, you know, that mm-hmm. are 
going to have platforms on YouTube. Right. For the most part, no. Right. But um, but it's pretty fascinating. So yeah, I can't really uh, get in and you know a word in edgewise. Edgewise, yeah. YouTube. It's videos. funny YouTube. YouTube is as good as I guess the person who uses it or the person who puts the, the stuff on there. There's some wonderful right. things. There's a guy who does Curious Droid who talks about space and exploration and he gets into all of the uh, the scientific stuff and I learn a lot about that but there's a lot of crap on YouTube as well right. and on the theater perspective I really think you know that may be the new platform the new digital stage if you will oh yeah it's just like what you guys are doing right I mean you right. have a podcast exactly. right really let's get together and let's do it because we want to right, right. it's the same exactly. thing with YouTube videos and you can have some amazing ones and then that that or you could have awful ones that horrible kid who who, um, I don't know if you've heard. Oh, I think he, 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 uh, he videotaped, the, I guess there's a place in Japan yeah. where people commit suicide. Oh. And he filmed someone hanging, being hung. For views. Oh. For views. Oh. To get clicks. I, I heard things. about that. I yeah. heard a response to it. Yeah. And then, and, then, um, and then he was all apologetic and he was all contrite. But then the next, like almost the next uh, YouTube video that it brought back, he was like, Tasing a dog or like a dead dog. Or something oh like yeah, so it's shock value. You know, it's right. hey, let me get the clicks. I don't care. You know, it's almost right. like integrity means absolutely well, nothing at so all. There's so much money. There's so much money in these. I mean, some of these yeah. kids are mil- you know multi-millionaires. I'm a little amazed. I have no crime. Yeah, I'm amazed at the business model of YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, and now they have YouTube Red. Okay, where, right. can yeah, I tell you guys something funny? Yes, yes, yes. I remember before YouTube really was YouTube. Yes. Okay, and I remember. Uh, they were trying to figure out what YouTube was going to be. They didn't know what it was going to be. And mm-hmm. they had ads on Craigslist l- looking for writers for original content. Like, oh. They didn't understand that people were going to load and load. I mean, yeah. obviously, that's what it's come around to sure, now with sure. YouTube Red, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. But at the time, they had no idea. This was, of course, before, like, Justin Bieber and all these mm-hmm. people. And they were trying to think, how are we going to how are we going to fill it up? You know, mm-hmm. so they were looking for writers. It's so funny to think about that now. Shucks, I wish I had jumped on that <laughs> <laughs> at the time. Well, you never know what's going to be the newest trend. Yeah, right. So let's get to an, let's get to an origin story. How did you get involved in uh, theater? Did you act when you were a child? Um, okay, well, I was a very, very, very shy, <laughs> perversely shy uh, kid, and. Um, you know, it's one of those stories where um, I, I didn't until I got to high school, and then I had this very dynamic, actually p- probably kind of sexy um, theater teacher from England, and he was just lovely, and he, I don't know, you know, he saw something, and he was kind. Mm-hmm. And I lived in Boston at the time, and he got me involved in this theater program at Emerson. Mm. And oh. he was just kind of a, mm-hmm. a mentor, and he was a lovely person, and, and I kind of blossomed. Did you grow up in Boston, and that's where you were born and raised? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I lived there for 16 years, and then I moved to Vermont um, uh, my senior year. Montpelier? No. Montpelier? Okay. No, no, I wish it was Montpelier, and that was Brattleboro, Vermont, which is kind of mm. a little bit of an armpit of Vermont. But um, nearby is Marlborough, Vermont. Uh, it's on the Massachusetts New Hampshire border, and um, that's where uh, I went to college. It was a tiny, tiny liberal arts college when I started. It was 165 students. Wow. Yep. When wow. I left, it was 300. So I I had the run of the theater department in a lot of ways because I was the single graduating mm-hmm. senior. This is a recurring story. We've heard this before, okay. where someone goes to a small school and they, a small theater department, and one person sort of runs it. I mean, Susan Edmonds almost told the exact same oh. story. So there's yeah. a pattern going on. Yeah. Well, I got all the theater prizes that year because I was the only <laughs> senior graduating from the theater department. Right uh, on. And then uh, I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. How long did you stay in New York? 
a couple of years. Um, and, you know, I mean, I had little successes, but not, you know, nothing fantastic. And then, uh, well, this is a, sort of a great story. So the way I came out to California was I had um, I had broken my foot. It's a long story, but I had oh. broken my foot. I was watching, uh, and I was deciding what to do. I was living with uh, who with, um, my my ex-husband, but, you know, we were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. And we had broken up, and I was trying to decide what do I do now with this broken foot, and, and we're broken <laughs> up, and I don't know what to do, and I have no money. I was watching the World Series on television. It was 1989, the, the Giants and Yays, and I was talking to my friend. He was saying, come oh, on now. yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the pitcher starts to wobble on the on the mound. Right. The TV goes dead. He starts to scream, and the phone line goes dead. And I think, oh, it's like some military thing. I don't, because mm-hmm. I don't know. Of course, it was the 89 earthquake. Right. Mm-hmm. And I moved out a week later with, like, four bags and a broken foot. And... Um, and he was the only person I knew in all of the Bay Area. And then he got into a motorcycle accident and went into a coma. And um, suddenly I, I didn't know anybody and I had no resources and I had to leave. So I cut off the cast. I walked around with a limp for about six months and I got a job at a toy store. <laughs> and and wow. then I decided to stay. Mm-hmm. In the Bay Area. Yes. And and this is it. your first time in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is, is this 89 or 90 or? 89. 89. Yeah. So what was life like? I mean, both of you can talk about this. What was San Francisco like in the late 80s? Oh, I thought it was great. I was moving from New York. To me, like, I was, I was still, I was poor in New York, but I felt it. And New York and the East Coast, to me, have kind of a a sort of a more overt kind of class system. Mm -hmm. You know, your class system, uh, you kind of the haves and the have-nots. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it doesn't exist in the Bay Area, right. but it's subtler. Right. And so suddenly I was just as poor, but suddenly my standard of, this is before the dot-com stuff, my mm-hmm. standard of living just completely increased. You know, my little studio apartment, my bicycle, and uh, I could uh-huh. see free theater. I lived in Rockridge. And I worked literally across the street. There used to be a, a toy store called Such a Business on College Avenue mm-hmm. in Rockridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, my standard of living went immediately through the roof. Um, still in middle yeah. I was going to say, so 89 in New York, if you stayed a little bit of time in New York, there was a lot of racial unrest in New York. Uh, there was Yusuf Hawkins. I don't know if you remember that. That was the uh, the guy who was mistaken for a black guy who was dating an uh, Italian girl. And these Italians just, you know, beat him up and killed him. That was going on. Uh, Bernard Getz, Tuana Brawley, the Central Park Five was going on. So you left at a good time. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember any of that stuff. No, I remember Getz. I completely remember Bernard Getz. Yeah, Bernard yeah. Getz. Yeah. So well, in theater here, I, what I remember is I, I was just getting involved in theater mm-hmm. at that point in the Bay Area. I guess I've been dabbling in it a couple of years. Um, but I was starting to become aware of sort of what was the spectrum of contemporary theater. And what was big at the time was solo shows. So I remember Spalding yes. Brave was yes. huge. And there were all kinds of there were all kinds of iterations of it. And I used to go to that stuff all yeah. the time. And you just felt like you were seeing you felt like you were two degrees away from Broadway and film. You just felt like yeah. it was, and in fact at that point Equity had an office here. You know, they had a regional office here. Um Part of that could also be your youth and enthusiasm, too, right? That kind, well, that kind of, like, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed thing when you're so young of, like, right. it could have, you know, you might right. be part I think of that, too. that young people are excited about stuff now that I can barely pay attention exactly. to. Exactly. <laughs> but I was paying Thank attention. Uh, yeah. The other yeah. thing was that there were a lot of companies that were coming to town to audition. From other places. That oh, interesting. Much more yeah. than it yeah, seems like it is now. Yeah, I agree. And, yeah. and, and it's kind of a shame. 
that, you know, well, things change and they change, but that's what the fabric yeah. of it was. It looks like Bay Area Theater was becoming the mecca, almost the West Coast version of New York, a place where you can actually, an artist can come and sort of shine. Well, L.A. is never a theater town. It never will be a theater town, more than likely. Mm-hmm. Um, San Francisco was giving you that. So even if you had no money or your ticket prices were dirt cheap, mm-hmm. um, you could still see amazing stuff all over town. And you know what they had back then that I loved? I used to pour over it. They used to have this thing, um, uh, a Theater Bay Area published an actual book, a, a directory. Oh, right. Remember this? And you could open it up, and it would show you all the theaters. Yeah. It would show you their budget, that what the artistic director wow. made, mm-hmm. right? And then you could decide, like... I actually remember, even in like being young and, and hungry, deciding certain places I wasn't going to work because the ratio was wrong. Like, right. like the their budget was, let's say, five hundred thousand, and the artistic director made a hundred thousand, right. and they paid non-union nothing. Right. But I remember at the time, Theater Rhinoceros, their budget was like five hundred thousand. Their artistic director made like. 40000 and they paid a weekly stipend. And I was right. like, yeah, that's where I want to be, you know. Um, but it was a book that was published, and you could look through it. And it was like, it was just, you know. Uh, it was a sense of transparency. Well, also just the sense of, like, how much was available. It right. was so rich, you know. And, and it was very aspirational. You know, yeah. I'm going to work at all. I'm going to check off every single. I will work at all of these theaters, you know. Well, and it also puts everybody in. One in relationship, which is my big thing, is I feel like there are a bunch of little enclaves and islands of theater happening with no reference to what's happening maybe across the street. To be able to know, oh, this theater does it this way, that theater does it that way, you can start to make those choices. Yeah, well, and that theater that didn't pay in the stipends, by the way, mm-hmm. also made, they put in their contract, you had to sign a contract, and they put in their contract that you had to pr- provide your own makeup and your own shoes. Mm-hmm. Which I was like, oh, come on. You know, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll bring my own shoes, but if you're going to put into a yeah. contract, and I'm going to... See, that's a good thing to know before you stepped in. I can, you know, I first came to the Bay Area in 1997 and got into theater and the arts, and you didn't know any of this stuff until after you joined a theater company or, you, you know, you signed up to do the show, and it's like, oh, for God's sake. This company's doing this and that and the other, and then it's like it's too late. I'm in it. So I, w- I would have loved to have had something like that. We were talking about, because uh, I had mentioned Othello, uh, which uh, I uh, helped. Uh, so in the arts, uh, I was part of the, I helped doing, uh, I was a stage manager for the Gorilla Shakespeare Company, and that was in uh, the Phoenix Theater on Deary. But you, Carolyn, were talking about the Deary, the Phoenix Theater, prior to, I guess there were there were two, there were two, Spaces moved around for a while. Right. Okay, if you want to talk about somebody who is the energizer bunny who never says die, and that is Linda Ayers Frederick. We had her on. We had her on. She just, I mean, there is not, she will not be stopped. (laughs) No, I mean, she actually deserves, like, some kind of accolade. And and, and I'm serious about that because she has been doing this forever, and she just keeps making it work and Mm -hmm. making it work in places. You know, the Phoenix Theater used to be down, like, Ninth and Folsom. There was like a carpet shop. I mean, do you remember that, Norman? Oh, they were in the, the venue nine. What became venue nine? Yes, yeah, something around there, but not. It I was think the they even. And then e- but even before that, they were like right. in what is actually a carpet store now. Yeah. I mean, she has been around forever. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and just and providing providing something really incredibly invaluable mm-hmm. to the community. Yeah. Anyway. And I think she well, she mentioned on the podcast that. The Phoenix Theater is a culturally, uh, she got some sort of a, yes. uh, an, uh, an, an acknowledgement by yes. the city of San Francisco right. 
that the Phoenix Theater is culturally significant. I wrote, I wrote a letter of support for that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it helped. It definitely helped. And she has helped uh, many people uh, find jobs, including me. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's anyway, all. sorry, I just have to get my soapbox. No, 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 no. I remember what you were that's asking. That's exactly why we invited you. <laughs> no, no, no. Just getting into the history, like, you know, you remember the old Phoenix Theater. Um, were there, I'm sure there are lots of uh, theater um, companies that have gone. Do you remember theater companies that are, uh, are not around anymore? Um, Norman, I'm sure. Uh, well, Climate is not around anymore, speaking of life. Oh, there there's the actual spaces, and then there's the thing, like Theater Rhino lost their space, and so they're now, I guess, a tenant at the, um, what was the Eureka Theater? Yeah, that's yeah. right, yeah. Well, the Eureka Theater, there's another one that's not yeah, around Eureka anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, Impact just left a couple of years ago. Impact yes, that's off. right, that's yeah. right, yes, um, yes. No, it's let's, let's talk about, because um, you were a member of EastEnders, that's how I remember you. Um, what did you get out of uh, EastEnders? I mean, uh, did you... Were there um, good things, bad things? Um, um, EastEnders came at a time in my life where um, I was transitioning into um, start of middle age, <laughs> and I was just really grateful for the opportunity to uh, to be working uh, on something juicy, and um, and it really was a strong um, ensemble of of actors who were really mm-hmm. part of the company mm-hmm. and right. designers and. What were some of the earlier shows that you worked uh, with them? I mean, I remember Fear and Misery, but I'm sure there was some other stuff earlier. Well, Fear and Misery of the Third Reich was probably, though, the, my my most, um, my favorite experience. And I got, can I, just, I just actually got incredibly fabulous reviews from that show. Yeah, yeah as mean, you should. Well, no, but I mean, like, something like, you know, because, okay, so reviews. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, sure. You know, I remember all my really bad ones, and that was probably one of my best ones. Um mm-hmm. But I, I, um, I, it's, I think there would there had been a touring production of Fear and Misery of the Third Reich, and I think like Lynn Redgrave or somebody had been in it, uh, and uh, like literally like they compared me favorably uh, to that performance yeah. or something like that, yeah. which is whatever. But it was like wow. But um, no, I've had some pretty awful um, reviews in my life too. Um, I, I had one. Um, my favorite ones are usually the ones where they t- they talk about your physical appearance. So I, I did a show at Rhino where I was the object of, of lust for many female characters, and and uh, the writer said, "Well, you know, she's not attractive enough. I, I can't believe it. Why would that? Why would that be?" But uh, then um, uh, I was also one of the, I think I was the first incident of topless um, of, of nudity at at Cal Shakes mm-hmm. as an apprentice. And um, Judith Green of the San Jose Mercury News mm-hmm. said, um, Carolyn Doyle cavorts around topless, a sight which turned out to be preferable to a later scene when she opens her mouth to speak. Mm. So not only did she not think I was a good actress, she didn't like my breasts. <laughs> wow, for goodness sake. No, but I also remember she had a review. Remember John Robb? Somebody else. Yeah. And um, we were doing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at Marine Theater Company. Mm. And her review of John... Oh, the, uh, the revival? Yes. Wow. And her, her her review of John Robb was, and John Robb has amazingly bad teeth. Mm. Which he does, but it, that's why you focus on this. It was story. crazy. It was crazy. And then there was also that, that season of Cal Shake. She also said something about... It wasn't just me. She said something about the male actors. Well, like the male actors are going to wear tights. They ought to use the Stairmaster. I mean, there was just like crazy <laughs> oh, things, God. you know? 
Yeah. And, you know, that's interesting. We, we had a podcast uh, a while back about actors dealing with rejection and depression and, and what have you. And I think we, you and I, Norman and I, we talked our perception of it. But I think as an actress, as a female actress, um, there's a different perspective there. I mean, judged. Yeah. And, and, and unfairly judged. I mean, how do you... How does one go about uh, just, you know, like picking yourself and saying, you know, just let's just keep going? Well, honestly, I was really good at it for a long time. Um, and I think that's pretty key, obviously, to longevity uh, in, in theater. Um, I didn't take a lot of it personally. In fact, a lot of it I saw as a badge of honor. I kind of worked my bad reviews, to be honest. And I don't think I'm an unattractive person. I don't think I'm a super course, attractive yeah. person. No, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'm pretty confident of where I sort of decide I have fallen in the spectrum of that. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, as I've gotten older, uh, it has gotten harder. And partly that's because um, just in general, being a middle-aged woman in society, I have there is a phenomenon that I have started to become invisible. Um, people literally don't see me sometimes. Like, I will, there's a pizza place um, in my neighborhood, and all these really cute dudes work there. And it's not like, you know, whatever, but like they're in their 20s. And like, right. they literally don't actually see me. I mean, right. it's not personal. It's not, they're just, I, I have to really. Not conscious, I'm sure. It's not at all. They're nice guys. <laughs> in mm-hmm. fact, when I kind of make jokes or, you know, if I come in there with Girl Scout cookies, somehow they see me when I'm selling Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I mean, like, they, and so, and so I, I do struggle with this feeling of becoming invisible, of becoming not you know, becoming less relevant, unimportant. Um, and, you know, I do have a son with autism, and there were a lot of issues that came along with that. And, and I have gained weight as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And that's actually been the hardest part, I have to say. I cannot take a headshot anymore. I'm not happy. I I, I don't mind getting older. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm unattractive or anything. I don't like being overweight, to just mm-hmm. be really blunt. And that's hard. And I don't know how... I don't know how that fits into my type anymore. You know, it's interesting. That, that, that is the type, though. Yeah. I know. Well, but people, yeah. but I wasn't always this type, so it's a shift right. for people, and they don't yeah. know quite what to make of it. Well, that, yeah, that's a whole other issue. I yeah. hate the casting director or whatever they, what title they want to give those people. I hate that they have this image, especially if they've known you for years. Yeah. They have this image of what you are and aren't. And they can't get the original image out of their head, yes, so yes. all they're doing is negatively judging you yes. in comparison to... It's like you're being cursed by your former well, self. Okay, but I think, though... A stranger could walk in looking yes. exactly like you, and they'd be delighted. But with you, they're like, oh, no, she used to be this, she used to be or, that. Or, some, or what's going to happen is we are going to kind of... Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still be around in 10 years and sort right. of outlive all those folks. And right. then there's going to be all these new young people coming in going, oh, and it will be more acceptable for me to be overweight in 10 years, right? I'll be able to mm-hmm. play those sort of matronly parts. And right. then, you know, and, but they'll see me with fresh eyes. Right. You know, and yeah, go, right. oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. I, I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like when I had this theory, you know, when you're in high school, you know, and, and, and if, you, if you grew up with braces and glasses and you get that off, they almost can't see it. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? You change. Right, right. And, and there was this girl, I remember one time in high school, she came to uh, high school with a dirty neck. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but she was like dirty neck girl, you know, for oh, like the right. rest of high school. Mm-hmm. Here, right? And so it's sort of the same thing like you're talking yeah, about, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, my, my type is shifting. But I think, like, again, when, when my daughter, uh, in four years, when my daughter goes to college and I kind of really re-enter the theater, you know, you know, people call me now, but I don't go to auditions much, but when I really start auditioning again, um, 
in four years, and I, I think I'm going to be transitioned into a different type. And yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Both the parts. You know, we've had Celia Maurice. We've had a lot of older um, people, uh, actresses like Celia yeah. Maurice, She's Michael so Greeley. <laughs> uh, She's so skinny. Michael. Uh, well, yeah. But, you know, they, they have talked about transitioning into um, a different role yeah. or, you know, like uh, their, uh, their roles that they, they – that they go for, that they couldn't go for beforehand, mm-hmm. or what have you. So I think, um, go ahead. Do you know my type? My type is, uh, and I realize this, my type is preschool teacher, nurse. I get nurses all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thing, I, I'm never going to be the high-powered district attorney. That's no? never No, oh. too heavy for that. No, no, no. Oh, I don't think I'm not so. going to be the police. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. If Kathy Bates can do it, you can do it. Kathy Bates. No, yeah, she does it, but can you think about her Kathy Bates? That's the thing. I mean, well, I don't know Kathy, names. Well, Kathy Bates can do it, but it's, but she's one of the very few that can do it. Usually, the high-power district attorney has a lean and hungry look. That's all I'm they saying. They often do that, yes. But I don't mind. I love playing nurses. And I don't even mind having a niche, honestly. And I don't even mind being pegged. Because if I can still get work from that, I could be moms. I could be, you know what I'm right. saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, all those things. I could be the Girl Scout troop leader. Do you know, like those <laughs> things. No, that's great. And, and I have no problem with that. I've realized, though... Uh, the, the nurse thing, I, I think the two things that the people see when, they, when they're casting me is, and these are good things, I like them, are capable mm-hmm. and compassionate. And that's mm-hmm. a nurse, right? Oh, right. I'm just going to say, so if, yeah. you, if I'm selling myself, right, like, mm-hmm. like as if I was a roll of toilet paper, right, sure. absorbent and mm-hmm. thick, you know, or whatever, then these are my, these are the kind of descriptors mm-hmm. that make sense for me, you right. know, compassionate. Mm-hmm. And I also have a little bit of a neurotic edge, too, which, you know. Which works for a lot yeah. of characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little quirky something there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elizabeth Carter did uh, The Seagull last year. And she played as Tregoran, the, the established poet-writer who comes at the beginning of Seagull to see the performance by the young people and eventually has an affair with the young actress. Uh, Elizabeth played that part. And they discussed whether or not that would be male or female. Well, you know, given Elizabeth, it wasn't really going to be male. Um, but she gave him a male energy, which, of course, in this area, in this time, reads beautifully. We recognize and understand that kind of person. And it gave the character a freshness that was amazing. And I thought, wow, I hope people are seeing or hearing about this because this will blow open a whole category of roles that women haven't been traditionally considered for. Okay, so I agree with you. I, I, you know, I like to embrace my type, but of course I want to go against type. Who doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I would love to see a Juliet with, you know, big feet and bad skin and mm-hmm. glasses and overweight. Wouldn't that be amazing if it's love at first sight? Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That would be profound and just outrageous. But you almost, you almost have to have an Elizabeth Carter who's so wonderful who can pull that off because – if you have somebody, um, you have so much up, you're, you're working against so much, right. right? And that's why you have to have a Kathy Bates. Right. You have to have somebody so phenomenal to be able to break through and go against type, mm-hmm. right? Because because the eye is drawn to beauty and drawn to youth mm-hmm. and drawn to those things. Now, of course, it was yeah. beautiful. And I think also um, the, the writing, if you have a writer who is lazy enough to focus just on, let's say, the actor or the actress or, you know, just the, the typical 
storyline that focuses on yeah, the archetype, then you run into these issues. You mean you writer or director? Dr- a writer. I'm, I'm oh, talking okay. about the writer. And of course, it deals with the director as well, but if you have, let's say, a writing, let's say, a subject matter that deals more on a psychological level sure. or something that deals with something more internal, mm-hmm. then you can get characters. It really doesn't matter because a lot of times right. you can't have a young actor or actress because they don't have the depth. Right. Okay, but I saw... I think it was Caucasian Chalk Circle mm-hmm. uh, at Berkeley Rep, something. Right. And the actress was not very good. She really wasn't. Right. But she was so beautiful. And I just well, see, sat back. No, but I sat back and I decided, well, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy that. There is mm-hmm. something about beauty. I right. mean, our eyes are drawn of to course. beauty. And it's lovely to see beauty on stage. Now, mm-hmm. I remember when Mad Men first came out. Right. And we had some voluptuous bodies, and it was a relief to my eye. My mm-hmm. eye was so hungry mm-hmm. for that. I wasn't used to that. But then you have Betty. Then you have Betty, the actress who, you know, was considered not so beautiful, and the storyline was, I'm not going to, you know, move up the corporate ladder doing what Joan is doing, the voluptuous beauty. But, you know, so they had another storyline that focused on, you know, the, the other aspect of works. So... But there is something about beauty. I, mean, sure I don't want to deny it. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's something about sex appeal and all those oh, things. Yeah. It's just when, when we get so tied down to them mm-hmm. and when we, um, and when people who are, you know, phenomenally talented who mm-hmm. don't happen to fix, fit that sort of candy box. Well, like you said with the tights, you know, the actors in tights. Uh, as if in Shakespeare's time there were just these bodies that came out of gyms. They didn't have gyms. <laughs> right. Um, they didn't have the Stairmaster back Right. Then. Yeah. <laughs> you know that those people weren't that. And yeah. if we aren't willing, are we entertained by seeing normal people? Because I love, uh, I work at an art center up in Richmond, and the definition that kids are taught about theater is that theater is doing ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And that, I thought was a great definition of what it is to be an actor. You have to make it seem real and natural, but you also need to be able to help shape the audience's focus so that the story gets told in the way that is meaningful. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I do like seeing ordinary people, except that, again, like we only have one Tommy Lee Jones, right? Right. You know what I'm saying? That sort of sexy, ugly thing, right? I mean, whatever. Right, but yeah, yeah. There's yeah. only one, in, because because there's only room. You know? I mean, mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. Be- my eye's not even used to it. You right. Know? It's that it, it, we get conditioned so quickly on. I mean, so sometimes I'm just happy for my little niche, and then hope occasionally that I get to be like Elizabeth and we get some other opportunities, because obviously yeah. we can all do a lot more than we get paid to do. Yeah, because I think in theater, unlike any other... Um, Medium mm-hmm. is for everyone. I mean, anyone and anyone, you know, if you have the inner talent, can. Well, it's funny. Um, Elizabeth is, and I'll say this, hopefully by the time people become familiar with this, it will already be dead, taken care of. But um, there's a piece, I'll just, yeah, I won't be specific, that'll work. Um, so there's a piece that Elizabeth is up for, and it is a traditional piece, and I mean, you know, classical traditional piece, uh, but the core of the story really is claiming to be talking to everybody. Mm-hmm. And if that's what you're trying to do in contemporary times to a contemporary audience, to not use a contemporary awareness to do your planning, your casting, your production, you're missing an opportunity. You're going to turn it into a museum piece where you could make it a piece of relevant theater. That's why I keep shouting out to Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. Ubuntu just closed, uh, not that was, uh, they just closed Streetcar in Desire. That's right. Well, Got well, incredible review. With a Philippine um, Stanley, right? Yeah, with the Filipino Stanley. Stanley. Um, they got incredible review. 
news. I look forward to seeing what happens with African American Shakespeare Company, which is opening theirs mm-hmm. this weekend. And I'm like, years ago, I went, wow, Black Stanley, that's going to be interesting. And now I'm like, wow, the Ubuntu production did it without changing the script or commenting on that fact. And yet, there's so much in the story that you look at with fresh eyes mm-hmm. because of the reality they're casting. And that is what they specialize in. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see. I'm ready to sign up for, um, I'm actually planning on buying two subscriptions to their season so that I can say to people, hey, come with me to nice. see this. Mm-hmm. Because I think it is so dynamic theater. Did you see Glass Menagerie at Caltrics? I felt that way about Glass Menagerie. Oh, I did not. Oh, I, it was fresh and new. Mm-hmm. The whole thing for me was just yeah. wonderful. It was really wonderful. And that's what we need, fresh eyes. I mean, directors seeing right. ca- the casting and the story with but fresh it's, eyes. It's everything, too, though. Do you know, let me ask you this, right. Norman. Do you ever, like, when they're casting you, like, do, do they ever match you up with women and see, you know, what's the height? I mean, it's, it's like everything. There's all these sort of structures that we're they sort of do, stuck into. What I always enjoy is, like, Elizabeth and I have been cast opposite before, and Elizabeth's taller than me. Right. So you're telling a different story when you put that man in, and it's telling I me know. as an actor, I need to bring an energy that is about this, by our social standards, mis-sized couple. Yes. That, bec- the story becomes fresh. Right. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. It's so, and to me, the number one thing I think is, is I would love to see more of the area theater is to say, there is this existing talent pool. What stories can we tell using the talent pool that we know about, rather than trying to fit somebody else's standard of what storytelling is to say we are the Bay Area and this is our talent pool. How do we use them? Absolutely. And we'd love to discuss more, but we're running uh, on time because you got to run out here, right? i got to add, add another show. We have, we have a two-show day. I have a matinee. Awesome. Oh, my goodness. Caroline, I hope so you know. So if there's anything else yeah. you wanted to, to get a shout-out on, this yeah. is your opportunity. Did you have a good time, Caroline? I did. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, we got to get you, you back on. Uh, any the shout-outs? shout-outs I will do is uh, what I already said, African-American Shakespeare's Streetcar is opening. Mm-hmm. Our show is running for, well, this weekend and next weekend, and then we prepare to go to France, which is going to be wild. Yeah. So, cool. so birthdays, I'll be real quick. Linda Huang, who is a, um, a veteran stage manager, her birthday was yesterday. Uh, Don Hardwick, uh, his birthday will be on the 9th, and I think that's that's all that I have. And uh, we already, already talked about the African-American Shakespeare there opening up um, a streetcar named Desire. Kari Moy, a uh, good friend of ours, he will be on there, uh, I think from the 3rd to the 17th of right. March. So Town Hall Theater, they're doing um, A Woman in Mind, right? That uh, I believe that's right. Who's Susan, just, uh, Susan Evans. Oh, Susan Evans. Oh, Evans. Oh, yeah. Theater. Theater. She didn't direct it, but a uh, woman in mind. A woman in mind. Backward. Yeah, and we will plug that. Oh. All right. So um, let me um, give you my last blurb. You can find the Yay on the Apple Podcast app on all iPhones and iPads. You can also find the Yay on iTunes. Just click on iTunes. Click on Store. Don't worry, you're not going to buy anything. Use the search engine on the upper right-hand side and search for the Yay. You can find us. For Android users, download the SoundCloud app or just go on SoundCloud.com. Search for the Yay. The A was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise and you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up on Facebook and we will take it from there. Now we've got to find a better sign-off. And we are out.